1: Welcome on. Thanks so much for listening to Dunked On if you are a dunked on prime subscriber you will of course get this ad free plus four other podcasts per week you can also get total access and that will give you our salary sheets our free agent rankings danny's and my chats uh, as well access to our discord and in honor of the upcoming nba trade deadline we are doing a sale right now for yearly membership so check that out dunked link is in the description. So we're going to actually go in reverse alphabetical or sorry, sorry no. Reverse. Not alphabetical order. Reverse record order. Thank you. Let's start with the Magic.
2: Yeah, the Magic have the worst record in the Eastern Conference. They are 7 and 33 overall, 2 and 10 since the last 15-60 including a loss to the Pistons, which is I think why we're talking about the Magic first. They're second to last in net rating in the league, negative 10.4, 28th in offense a little bit better in defense. 538 still projects that they will actually not finish with the worst record in these, but the second worst at 19 wins, and they're not going to make the playoffs. But as I brought up a couple of times ago, there are plenty of players that we could talk about at length with, with the Magic, with breakdowns, you know, Mobamba. we've talked about Gal Anthony a lot in the pod, and you wanted to talk about Franz Wagner.
1: Franz Wagner, you and I didn't do full scouts on him, but we did a, a mini scout. Neither of us was particularly enthused, and I think the thought was, because Alright, he, he's like a smart guy, a connector, has some decent size. Don't think he's gonna be elite defensively. Maybe he could be solid there. But kind of the appeal of him was well, you can he's got these ball skills, but is he really gonna be able to do that at the NBA level? Is he really explosive enough? And I thought the answer was gonna be no. Again, not with a full scout, so I'll give myself a little bit of a pass here. But no, he absolutely has been. This guy is the real deal, and the biggest thing that's just impressive about him i've talked previously in the last couple of weeks of just his finishing package and the great euro steps that he gets and as I watched more film on him that was something that really stood out a ton but the bigger thing even than that is just getting to the basket to begin with and you didn't think that that would necessarily be possible that he was going to be a guy you'd put the ball in his hands au contraire 28 of his possessions by far the largest percentage of his possessions come in the pick and roll and for a rookie here at he's 20 this is his age 20 season right right and for him to be about average in terms of on ball pick and roll efficiency about two-thirds of his pick and rolls that result in a shot are his own shots but he's shown some decent distribution I think he's a a solid passer but just his ability to get to the basket and he uses these really long strides not only to finish but even to cover ground outside the lane his handle has been very solid sure he'll turn it over a reasonable amount but not that much only averaging 1.6 turnovers per game as he's ramped up his workload a little bit we've seen a few more somewhat ugly turnovers but nothing that really stands out as being crazy and he's got this between the legs dribble that he can use to create separation as he's coming downhill he can cross over really well his handle is pretty tight and just his change of direction is very impressive and then once he changes direction he can widen that gap using the long strides and I think it's great that he's on the Magic, particularly in this time period where Cole Anthony has been in and out of the lineup. But obviously, even when he is there, they are massively hurting for anyone who can do anything off the dribble on this team. And so it's been really good. He's really more featured in the Magic offense than he was at Michigan. And then when you get to his finishing I'm just, in the recent game against the Sixers, I was just very impressed. He's also just really big and long and tall, you know, 6'9", 6'10". And so he was totally comfortable challenging Joel Embiid at the rim, coming downhill at him on drives. I counted six shot attempts against Embiid, and he made four of them, and he looked pretty good. Three of those, he just completely wrong-footed Embiid, and Embiid didn't even really get a contest. And just Wagner was met by Embiid, kind of around the dotted line, and was able to just wrong-foot him, step around him, and get a layup with some of those crafty same hand same foot finishes left hand right-handed hooks and then three times he actually just went pretty much right into the chest of Embiid those he didn't get any of them blocked he left a couple of them short and then he also had one really nice euro step which Embiid contested that kind of rimmed in but I just that level of aggressiveness against a, a guy who we'll talk a little about a little bit later isn't maybe the greatest rim protector statistically anymore but still one of the biggest guys there when he's in position and does a ton to intimidate people. Just so impressed by what I've seen. And I think it's going to be a fascinating question because Jonathan Kaminga obviously hasn't had nearly the amount of space that Wagner has had of which player is better. But I think just because we've seen that Wagner is able to do what he's been able to do, I would say at this point, if I were doing a redraft, I probably would have Wagner over Kaminga, even though I would give Kaminga, of course, the, the higher up.
2: Right. I mean, proving it against NBA caliber talent, especially with Wagner where we're getting into a larger sample here. I mean, Wagner has played 1300 NBA minutes. And he's largely doing it starters versus starters. So it's not even like, oh, you're, you know, dominating a garbage time or against a different kind of opponent. And for me, the the pick and roll stuff is is, is definitely the headliner. And that is like it, it makes his role eventually so much more intriguing because, I mean, he's 20. And so doing all this and also extremely encouraging, you know, so going back to like the the appeal of Wagner, I thought there were kind of three avenues for him and they're not mutually exclusive. So it was what can you do with the ball in his hands? That has been much better than I expected. Better than I, much better than it looked in summer league to me as well. Then can he be a good enough off-ball shooter? The teams have to respect him. So far, thirty-seven percent on threes, and if you want to use overall catch and shoots, one point two points per possession—that's great. You know that—that's that another
1: more. reason. That was another reason I was lower on him. I just I didn't really believe that his jumper was going to be that good. His form looked kind of weird. It didn't look that versatile, but uh, and his form still does look a little bit weird. But he's able to get it off, moving left to right on flybys and stuff. So I think I think he's going to be at least you know a league average type of shooter on some pretty decent volume.
2: And then the third component is defense. And he's been, I think he's been good on that overall. He had a really nice transition stop on Cade Cunningham in the game on Saturday where Cunningham was driving at him. Wagner was already there. He stayed in position and just blocked his shot. It was really, really nice work. And I don't think he's going to be like a stopper. I think he's more of a like a good team defender who can do you know who can do what you ask of him. And especially with the offensive growth, that's more than enough. And so yeah, I'm extremely encouraged by it. And that's one of the big you know it's a really big positive for him for this draft class and of course for the magic.
1: Couple other things that that I wanted to add a on him it looks like his skill level is good enough for him to play three and given yes. his size that's really big and now if you have someone with his size the three you could bring in jonathan isaac at four and because we kind of wondered that too i like, not they already have jonathan isaac but uh, jonathan isaac at the four a decent center defensively and wendell carter and i've been a little actually disappointed in the magic defense so far this year they've had a lot of guys in and out and they're young it's or i thought isaac and Bolt would Bolt to be back by now they're not but and then with Fultz maybe getting into the guard rotation and Cole Anthony is not a very good defender that that'll be a little bit of a problem they'll have to get probably some defenseless you know the new Terrence Ross at the two as they're kind of building out this vision of the team they still got Jalen Suggs too who again is very solid defensively but I think if Jamal Mosley can turn out to be the real deal as a defensive coach I think these guys could get respectable much more quickly in the next couple of years just due to the potential defensive upside now it'd be nice to say help etc so there's that aspect and then the other things i want to add it to is while he's done more than expected on ball he's still a solid cutter really runs the floor in transition and when he's coming downhill at a guy in transition particularly a guard he's just able to step right around that guy yes. and finish very easily a little bit more explosion right at the basket than i, I mean he's not he's honestly not coming into dunk any. he and josh giddy kind of both have this where if they get a, a head of steam downhill they can actually get up pretty good off of one foot get on get the ball to the backboard quick With good extension, and then just to go back to the pick and roll, I forgot to mention this stat earlier. I mentioned his drives. So overall, on drives, Wagner is averaging nine point two drives a game, which that's a really high number for a rookie who, again, wasn't expected to necessarily be a guy who's going to have the ball a lot. And then building on that, out of pick and roll, fifty nine percent of the time out of pick and roll, he's taking it right to the basket. That's fantastic. And and, you know, he's not finishing unbelievably on those plays, but for having court offense he's he gets fouled sometimes so it's 1.03 points per possession that's a below average number in terms of the normal efficiency you would have taken to the basket out of pick and roll but he's getting there so often it's still good offense even if you're a below average finisher at the rim generally just about anybody getting to the rim is good offense even if they're a below average finisher and then off the dribble he's 10 out of 29 but all those are threes all of his jumpers pretty much out of the pick and roll are from three and then he also has a pretty decent float game which about average again 12 out of 28 on floaters out of pick and roll which is enough to make that kind of a threat as well so just uh, all very impressive again probably not the primary ball handler but also just because of his off ball movement he can come out of the corner come off a handoff attack on the second side Uh, just a really really nice player i and i'm very into uh, following his career for for now i I just very much enjoyed watching this film
2: agreed and i i i love being wrong on a player when i think they're not good and they end up dramatically exceeding expectations and to have a player do so so quickly is fantastic it makes me feel a little bit dumb but also at the same point like he, he looks a lot better and because the the track record for guys who are more toolsy than athletic isn't the greatest but there is a path forward and Franz Wagner is a great example of how that can go we can transition to the Pistons and we have a different player focus there and a different tone of that player focus but before oh. we get to that before we get to that the overall stats yeah.
1: for Detroit well I, I, I'll do those actually uh, sure since you since you did most of the research on this one the Pistons are 8 and 30 4 and 8 4 and 8 daddy since uh, the last 50 and 60
2: they have the over, over is total not overall. totally dead it's just real close yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, I, I definitely was wrong in thinking that these guys were going to be the best of the bad teams that's not looking.
2: Well, if they, if they were at full strength, maybe sometimes. But yeah, they don't have as much talent.
1: Yeah, I, they got off to such a terrible start without Cade. And then Grant went down pretty quickly. Those guys haven't played together. But then they're also probably going to trade Jeremy Grant, you would think. Uh, at least they're smart. Um, But anyway, yeah. So 8-30, 4-8, more, much more respectable in their last 12. Negative 11 net rating is 30th 100.8 offensive rating is you guessed it 30th 23rd on defense so that was part of the reason why i had some hope for them was that they could get better defensively that's and that's where you hope maybe that will improve i would say we could probably talk about the overall was the over like 25 25 and a half wins
2: it was 24 and a half but yeah something in that range
1: yeah so uh they project for 18 wins 15th in the conference uh they will not be making playoffs
2: well before we get to killian hayes we could talk a little bit about the news on early on Sunday that they are acquiring Bull Bull at the low, low cost of Rodney Magruder and Brooklyn's 22 second round pick. That is one of the weaker ones around. And I'm excited about this from Detroit's perspective because he's a curio on a team that needs curios and the theory of Bull Bull that he can I, I, I'm most intrigued by him at center where he can try, like, try to block some shots and then the weird perimeter stuff is actually kind of a competitive advantage more more in the line of Manute Um and there was you know Denver was always challenging I mean they have the best center the best center in the planet ahead of him who doesn't miss much time and they just kind of always tried some different stuff so I'm, I'm in intrigued by this. My expectations of Bull, Bull being a rotation quality player are very low but mine is I, I mean if this is the cost for Troy Weaver why the hell not
1: yeah that Brooklyn 2022 pick is, is not amazing and, and Magruder may actually give the Nuggets a body well, on the
2: and, that they. well d- depending on it it also might be a way for them to open up a roster spot for Devon Reed they actually just to get their stuff out of it they uh, cut
1: that they're just gonna wave Magruder
2: they cut well we don't know yet they cut Peter Cornley and got Reed on a ah! two way but yeah Wait, still, I thought, I thought Peter
1: Cornely was already on a two
2: way no they, they replaced Cornelly with Devon Reed on a two way, but then I think they're going to convert Devon Reed. I think that's going to be what happens here. I'm not sure. Let's we'll see.
1: Yeah. I mean, Magruder, he's just, he had the great time in Miami, and then as soon as he went to the Clippers, he completely lost his powers. And it's been three years since he's really contributed at a rotation level. So hard to believe him up. And I agree, it does kind of feel like he might be way, but the Nuggets are so desperate for any kind of body. Free, I wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if maybe they keep him around. And let's get back though to Bull Bull in Detroit. I think he I just I saw him in person when the Nuggets were here a couple of weeks ago and he's just still so thin particularly in the lower body also just like they can't really get low can't move anybody and you always think oh guys will fill out enough you know like your Anthony Davis and Chris Bosch, like those guys will fill out enough to play center but Bull I think even has a thinner body type than those guys do and I think it's just been really hard for him to put on weight now maybe he just hasn't been working at it I don't know I mean obviously there were those issues coming in. And so this idea that he's going to like face the basket and attack off the dribble and all that. He could definitely really shoot and he could definitely really block shots, but he really can't do anything else but you know, he could dribble better for a center, but that doesn't really do you any good. So Hopefully he plays and we'll see we'll see what happens. Their their backup big situation is uh pretty miserable at the moment. And maybe he can just give them some shooting and help their offense a little bit. But uh I, I think I'm interested to see what position they play. I, I would try him at center. Maybe he can hold up better than we think he can, but I, I'm just so skeptical because he's so thin. So uh that said, let's uh, let's do your work on Killian Hayes here. Yeah killing
2: Hayes second year this is the age 20 campaign and shifting Hayes remember he had that injury played year he's actually played more minutes now for the Pistons this year than last year because of the absences with the hip issue and shifting him to a more off ball role with Cade you know still kind of a mix with Hayes we wondered if that in the passage of time and skill development would would improve things and unfortunately it has not the numbers are pretty brutal 45 percent true shooting is actually better than last year but still horrendous but that's only on 14% usage and a 21 assist percentage. That's basketball references version of the stat. Both of those are way down because his role within the offense has decreased. And 45% true shooting is bad. I actually think it looks worse when you split it into the constituent elements. 34% from the field, 31% from three, and 38% on twos. Drop below 40% in the loss of the Magic. And the part of the concern is that, okay, how are you going to build the effective base? And this came up with D'Angelo Russell and a couple other guys that I thought of as below average athletes for the point guard position, though it Hayes, I think, has some tools, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Hayes doesn't get to the basket, and he doesn't get fouled. So that's a big problem. Um, Only 12% of his attempts are in the restricted area, and he barely takes any free throw attempts. Um, The good news is that so i I don't really know how the right way to explain this but killian hayes does not generate an advantage enough and that is a big part of the problem he's not beating his guy off the dribble enough he's not doing anything else but when he has an advantage and typically that comes by like a really good screen or by playing in transition i think some of it actually looks pretty good like he can make some reads he can when he has enough space he can sometimes get to the basket and, and finish it not great through contact the question is How do you, how does he create an advantage more often? And maybe his handle can get a little bit better. One big way would be a more reliable pull up shot, so players have to stay more up on him. And that's to me the real challenge of kind of how you manage this as Weaver and the Pistons is. Playing in NBA games is definitely going to help him just like it does anybody else. I mean, I'm, going to, I'm not going to argue that anything else. But there will be a point where giving him those reps, especially if he's not making shots next to Cade, it's doing the the organization more harm than good is, than the good it is doing for him. And
1: I, That's a great way of putting it.
2: And so, for Hayes, like you could say right now the pistons aren't very good. And so you can you can manage that and you can tolerate it. But if you're like it's just such a toxic ecosystem offensively for, and you have somebody already who's ahead of him in the pecking order with, with Kay Cunningham. you got a guy who's going to be there. So my my read on it would be marginalize Killian Hayes heavily. Say, you know, like if you earn it, of course, we'll put you back in. Play him more as a non-Kate option. Maybe whether that's Corey Joseph, you just go in other directions in those minutes. And then you, you still work with him in the coaching staff and everything else. You give him the chance to improve. I'm not saying you cut him or necessarily you trade him or anything else like that, but you don't change that back until there's market improvement because like for example in the Orlando game I watched a fair portion of it yesterday Cole Anthony was just not guarding Killian Hayes when the ball wasn't in his hand, and it wasn't, you know, wasn't really causing causing too much of a problem. It's like, well, okay, you can handle that if a guy's great defensively or he's doing his other stuff, but Killian Hayes isn't doing those other things other than competing. All right, defensively, I think he's become a capable defensive player. The steal and block rates are pretty good. EPM likes his defense, and I, you know, like he he's trying out there. He's trying to make things happen, and and I like some of that stuff, but. It's just, it's it's hard. It's not impossible for him to get from this point to capable NBA player. It's just that it's going to be a rough road and it's so uncertain that I wouldn't give him a ton of a ton of time to do it on the court.
1: I mean, I think once they go into full tank mode, like in April, just go ahead and give him some minutes to just run a ton of picker. Because the, the 14% usage, obviously, really low usage and really low efficiency is kind of too bad. And that's really torpedoing the team because he is, as you mentioned, he's playing off ball more because he's not an efficient option on ball. I think they do need to just let him sink or swim with some more on ball reps at some point. Maybe that's off the bench maybe it's just tanktastic at the end of the season Um, but yeah clearly if he can't show real growth this is the last year that he should get any kind of guaranteed playing time and all right if he gets way better in summer league and and but he needs to they need to have a real starting option in here next year and all right if he can compete with that guy and i'll play him fine but and they, they do have cap space but maybe in the draft i don't know how good the point guard class is in this year's draft yet but oh
2: and so if you want the stats on it, i pulled this up yeah. um this is the Using the NBA's on off tool. So I say every once in a while can be a little squirrely. Killian Hayes playing without Kate Cunningham, his usage rate goes to 16.5%, which is way lower than I would have thought. I think a lot like that's just he's just not that big a part of it. True shooting drops to 38%, offensive rating 86.6.
1: Yeah, bad three point shooting in those times, but of course he's he's part of that, <laughs> right? So man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 20. 20- 15. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct to consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then girlfriend, now wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. Let's now move on to a team that is thirteenth in the Eastern Conference. Nobody really would have expected that at this point in time. They've really been struggling with injuries and guys with protocols. The Pacers are now fifteen and twenty-five. Yeah.
2: Let me repeat that. Year, the Indiana Pacers have the thirteenth best record in the Eastern Conference.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> and obviously they've been having all these luck issues. Why, why don't you finish out what, what their their stats are? Yeah. Sure.
2: I mean, they've been a rough three and nine since the last fifteen and sixty. But they have a positive net rating. Yes, that's right. The number 13 team in the East has a positive net rating. Plus 0.7 is 15th in the NBA. That's mostly on the strength of their offense, actually. They're 13th in offense, 21st in defense. 538 thinks they'll finish tied for 11th in the East. And gives them a 15% chance of making the playoffs. Elo is about half of that. A couple of pieces of news for them. We talked a lot about Lance Stevenson in the game that they played. where they ended up falling to the Nets. And Mark Stein reporting that the Pacers are planning to keep Lance Stevenson for the rest of the season. He's about to end this hardship deal. But they could build clear rosters. But they already cut Keelan Martin. So it seems like that's already lined up for for Lance. And then the scan watch is continuing to be positive for TJ Warren. He got another scan and has been cleared to increase his activities even more. But I think this is per Carlisle still weeks away if things continue to progress as they have been so after the All I guess break is what that yeah means. that I, I that's what I, I think, think it means too
1: days. so yeah. I and, and I think even even after the all-star break they won't be practicing so you know maybe maybe the, it seems like the earliest thing that could happen is he would get cleared to start practicing after the all-stars kind of what that sounds but let's not focus any further on the negative here Lance Stevenson has been a great story we talked about him in our recap of the Brooklyn Indiana game on Wednesday and then he came Back with a sixteen point fourteen assist game, as they absolutely eviscerated the Jazz defense without Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert's pretty important to that Jazz defense. I, I'm going to tell you, having watched the, the film,
2: yeah. I, I, of this I game, can can we give Rudy Gobert most valuable defensive player? I know that's not an award that they give out, but that like I mean that game was such an amazing reminder. You watched more of it than I did of just how central he is to what they do.
1: Oh, and actually, here we we didn't talk about this yet. Just in the more macro discussion of these guys they're positive in the Turner Sabonis minutes and when they've had anything approaching their normal lineup on the floor how does it look
2: it's a great Sabonis Turner Brogdon they've only played 846 possessions together plus 10 net rating
1: yeah so that's, that's around four 400 minutes which is not much uh so yeah I mean th- there are these indicators that's why they're still even at 15 and 25 they're still projected for 38 wins and that's tied for 11th the Hornets are looking at 10th at 41 and 41 in the 538 projections right now but certainly the Pacers could uh, I think take and a very decent chance of getting into the play and not that that's some great shakes and so I, there is some at least a thought that hey these guys could still be you know seventh or sixth seed if everything breaks right for this group but as we've mentioned with these ensemble casts, it's just harder for things to break right when you have you're really reliant on the whole ensemble being there to really be playing at your peak I posited we had this discussion actually on, on our text thread of whether this is one of the most boring teams in the league and then they signed Lance Stevenson and uh au contraire and Lance and Sabonis just destroyed in Indiana, they did. Utah. It got, or, sorry, yes, Utah, thank you. Um, they started Washington Jr. and Kiefer Sykes again in the backcourt. Lance came in off the bench, and he has been just totally on ball at all times as the pick-and-roll ball handler. He is 16 out of 22 as a shooter. Some of those are on jumpers that are unsustainably difficult. He's never been a great jump shooter. We'll, we'll see. what It looks smoother. He looks more aggressive, but he's that's not going to... I don't predict that Lance Stevenson is going to be a positive as a, an off The dribble jump shooter, Uh, but he is fifty-three percent of the time as a pick and roll ball handler, and then another twenty percent in isolation. So he's basically doing everything on ball and very efficiently. And then he had the sixteen points and fourteen assists. I counted ten of those assists were to Demontis Sabonis. A couple of them were pick and pop jumpers, but the rest of them were just pick and roll setups right at the rim. And Sabonis is a a really good finisher, and he's particularly adept at abusing smaller players and mismatches who. can't keep him from getting to that left hand where he can use his power. He does a great job of warding guys off using his shoulder, being patient under the rim when there are smaller players there guarding him. And so, as soon as Lance would get it to him, and I mean, some of these were just part the waters coming right down the lane for a dunk type of plays. Uh, and Lance was throwing some great passes. This one beautiful no look, and then he did his little you know high stepping celebration running back down the sideline afterwards on a key play that helped them take the lead late. They ended up winning by twelve against Utah, uh, but. Lance Lance also threw some great drop-off passes. Sabonis is quite capable of catching at the foul line, taking one dribble and then powering up. Utah tried switching at one point, and that didn't really work. Sabonis just buried his guy in the post. He got about three buckets that way as well, and a lot of those were set up deep by Lance. I mean, it was really, it was a great synergy. And then on occasion, Utah was like, all right, I guess we'll try something. They tried literally everything. The Rudy Gay at center lineups were terrible. They tried Rudy Gay in a conventional pick and roll defense trying to stop Sabonis at the rim that didn't work too well as you might have guessed they tried switching him then Sabonis mashed down in the post inside they tried bringing more help at the nail and then the Pacers were 14 to 29 three in the game so that didn't work
2: oh I want to mention Sabonis's full stat line
1: yes please do
2: 42 points 18 of 22 from the field Six rebounds, three assists, plus 13. And Lance, not only did he have 16 and 14, he only had one turnover in the game.
1: Yeah, which is a, has been a problem for him. And and Sabonis was three of four from three. But all, this is actually always something to kind of watch is when a guy hits a bunch of threes early in a game, he actually hit all three of the threes that he made in the first quarter. And so then that made Utah really wary of him and, and opened up some other stuff. But I think of of Sabonis' 18 out of 22, I mean, it's pretty much impossible to shoot 18 out of 22 on self-created stuff. I would only categorize maybe like three of his buckets as self-created in the sense that like they just threw it to him in the post or in isolation. And of course, Utah couldn't execute the scouting report. He just got right to right shoulder or spun spun that way every time. But the other thing that was really, or or the other way that he scored, which I think it doesn't, maybe it's not self-created necessarily, but it is, you know, it's not just, hey, you're passing it. Anybody could have done this type of stuff. Those deep steals that he gets, he's tireless working for position. And when he gets the ball right at the charge circle against a smaller player, they can't do anything in uh utah a a lot of smaller players Mm -hmm. (laughs) up there for this utah team which had their whole team basically other than gobert and the other thing that's kind of underrated about savonis is his durability both in terms of being able to play a lot of minutes there are not very many big men who are going to play 38 minutes in a game and he does that pretty regularly and then also very rarely gets hurt
2: by the way, was this was another game that I mean it was settled earlier, but this was a game where Miles Turner wasn't in in the key moments, right? Like when it was settled.
1: Yep. No, at the end, that's right. Yeah, only 28 minutes for Turner, and the Jazz had a little bit more success defensively when Turner was in without Sabonis. Then they were just switched. They're even switching Hassan Whiteside out in the perimeter because their pick and roll defense was that bad, and, and Whiteside also was pretty bad. But for going back to Lance, he does look explosive. I'll give yeah. him that. He looks thin. He was able to go right through the. Body of Whiteside, who's still a pretty big guy. Uh, a couple of times for layups, and just able to get on top of the rim uh, pretty quickly. Like he looks dynamic out there. and I think yeah. it'll be interesting to see. And
2: and Lance is only thirty-one. He's, I mean, that's still you know fairly old for you know I, 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 players generally stick in the league longer if they're if they have better tools. But I mean, look, he's looking good out there. Uh, as shocking as it is that the Pacers are thirteenth in the in the East, I think the twelve team is even more stunning, and that's the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks... Last year's five C, last year's Eastern Conference finalist, they are seventeen and twenty one. They are four and eight since the last fifteen and sixty. They're their negative net rating, but only negative zero point five. Second in offense, twenty-eighth in defense. Mm. And so so the Raptor projection is much more optimistic than Elo. It gives them a fifty five percent chance of making the playoffs. Projects they'll finish with forty three wins tied for seventh.
1: Um Elo twenty six percent. yeah, Elo twenty six percent. Yeah, so when the Raptor number is higher than the Elo number. Basically, what's that saying is we like their players better than we like how they've played so far.
2: And that makes sense when you consider the loss that they had. Uh, John Hollinger talked about this, the, the loss they had to the Lakers, 134-118 at Staples on Friday. Um, before we get into that, i have a whole thing on their defense. Something that I find intriguing about the Hawks is that they are currently, they turn the ball over the least, and they force the least turnovers. So one of those is good, and one of those is distinctly not good, um, but well, and it's a, it's a potential challenge um, for them. So I was inspired by Hollinger's tweet. He basically said, talked about how their, their defense during that Lakers game was totally broken and transition D and Capella's not at the level and and they, you know, like a whole bunch of bad stuff. And broadly speaking, he's right. And it's a bigger concern for me with the Hawks because at this point, they're not whole. I mean, Hunter's still out and a couple other guys, but they're, they're closer than they should be to have performances like that. And to back up what John noticed, the Hawks are 29th in the NBA in opponents point plus per 100 possessions. That's basically how many transition points do you get per 100 possessions per game. And that's way more than last year, 4.1. And that's actually fueled not by transition frequency, which I would say is it would be a greater concern, but by transition success. Uh, 1.36 points per possession is astonishingly high in those circumstances. So... The good news is, I think that can regress to the mean a little bit. The bad news is, that's really, really bad. And there, uh, something that I noticed was that the Hawks' opponent points possession off of steals is abnormally high and has been each of the last three seasons that could be that maybe like trey young turnovers are a little bit different than other guy turnovers it's a possibility that's something i would like to ask
1: so because a lot of those just occur on drives and if if the guy anything that occurs on a drive is usually going to be a problem for your transition defense you're going to your
2: your your transition defenders are going to be in like exactly the wrong position to actually do anything
1: yeah because you're going to have both corners filled and now, I mean, it's worth noting, right? You mentioned they have the lowest turnover rate. You know, Trey still turns it over a fair amount. But I think it's it's also fair to note that the goal for your offense is for the team overall to not turn it over that much. So, yeah, Trey might turn it over a lot. But as long as he's enabling everyone else to never turn it over, it's not the end of the world that he himself turns it over. And okay. as you noted with the, their overall turnover rate. But um, let's talk about uh, more about their defense. Like you started on the, on the transition. What are some of the other issues that they've had from last year when they were... Uh, also worth noting, remember last year we had that Watfo where they're like tenth or something. We thought they might maintain that; they totally didn't.
2: Yeah, they fell. So. They fell to. They fell to. Uh, they fell to seventeenth. Uh, um, yeah, they they, they were seventeenth last year. Now they're twenty eighth. They were twelfth last year in half court defense, and that's that's falling off. So I was thinking, looking at well, what's different from this year to last year? Because last year thing they were they were more successful than we anticipated. And everything else and. A lot of the fundamentals are actually the same. They didn't force turnovers in either season. The Hawks are actually doing a better job on the defensive glass and not fouling than last year. Um, And those are two strengths. There were two strengths of the defense last year, their strengths again. So really the entire shift is in opponent effective field goal percentage. And only a small portion of that is giving up worse shots. Um, the opponents are taking a few more threes, um, but they're not—they're not shifting long twos to threes. They're shifting shots around the basket, which is kind of interesting. Um, but it's actually the shots going in. Last year. The Hawks were third lowest in terms of opponent three-point shooting. So you expect that to swing back, the pendulum to swing back, and it swung back really far. Now they're ninth highest. So they went from, you know, 30. And part of that is, you know, lower lower three in environment. So the numbers aren't as good, but the shift relative to the league is dramatic. And up a little bit around the basket, about 2%. And that's true in Capella's minutes and when Capella sits. So it's not just a bench, you know, having Jang instead of a Kongwu or something else like that. It's it's both. And and that's a concern. And so so one question is, do we expect do we expect to see this Hawks defense be better moving forward than they have been so far?
1: So without changes in who's on the floor, I wouldn't really think so. It, the, it, you, I think laid out a pretty good case here that there's not a ton in terms of just shooting lock that's going to regress or anything like that the return of Okongwu can he just be that much better than what Gorgie Jang or John Collins at center has given them that's maybe a reason for hope the other potential reason for hope is just they're going to have different players on the floor maybe that's by a trade maybe that's the return of DeAndre Hunter to get more wing defense out there it could also mean the minimization of Danilo Gallinari who is not really a positive at the four at this point defensively so if you're back up front Court all of a sudden all of a sudden becomes Hunter and a Kongu, or Collins and a Kongu, and Gallo is kind of just minimized or he gets traded. He seems like the most likely trade fodder potentially for them, although they do have issues as far as taking on more money for next year, given their current salary structure with trade contract kicking in. But I mean, is there any? Do you agree with me that just in terms of their the way things have been going currently, if they just continue on like they have been, things aren't really going to be any better?
2: I agree, and it's especially important to know note that they're closer to the appropriate kind of opponent shooting luck this year than they were last year. like the pendulum has swung but this is closer to where it should be like and part of that is the shots they give up last year the Hawks were 18th in location effective field goal percentage and 6th in actual this year they're 21st and 25th so 21st and 25th are closer together you generally teams can control this was something came up with the Knicks a lot you could control more around the basket stuff but I think that's a good calibrator for okay this is about what they're what they're going to do and so maybe they can be less bad but where they last year they were 17th and 12th in half court defense those seem like the anomalies
1: so this is very convenient because the Celtics and Knicks played last night and we're going to talk about that we can talk a little bit too about the game they played previous to that that classic that they played on Thursday too bad there aren't any more games of Boston at New York because both of those have been awesome so far this year but both of these teams the Celtics and the Knicks are at 10th and 11th you mentioned the Hawks being a surprise where they are and now these teams are all quite jumbled together and this could could change by quite a bit between eighth and twelfth there's only a two game separation right now in the loss column but both the knicks and celtics are 19 and 21 let's start with the knicks fundamentals the new york knicks have righted the ship they're seven and six since the last 15 and 60 despite the fact that they've had quite a few absences with derrick rose then obviously we talked about how kemba walker played a bunch of minutes and then immediately went down Because he has a chronic knee condition, big surprise. So, their guard play has really been a struggle. They've been trying Alec Burks at point guard, they just really haven't had good traditional point guard play lately. That was a a big problem in their loss to Toronto. And obviously, when only putting up 75 points in this game against Boston on Saturday, which we'll talk about, they are negative 0.7 net rating that's 21st in the NBA, 19th on offense, and 18th on defense. So, they seem to be earning that 21st net rating, not really a lead on either end projecting for 13th in the conference with 37 wins that that if that actually holds which it won't some there's going to be more stratification as teams get injuries and just decide it's not worth it i think i don't know if that team is going to be the knicks necessarily but it's going to be some it's not
2: going to be the knicks
1: but it'll be somebody
2: well i I mean
1: we'll see but (laughs) i I think you're probably And but 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 also i i this would be my bet this actually be maybe an interesting waffle to do how many wins does the 13th seed in east finish with yeah. That, what are let, the, let's uh, do that. Actually. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like we're, we're there because that would. I mean, 37 wins w- would have to be the best of 13 seed. Yeah. So would you
2: want to pick 37 or do you want to do like 36 or so that's the 13th seed in the East let's has let's say it, let's say 35 plus.
1: Okay, it's 35 plus. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that only has a 20 percent chance. Sorry if I I probably should have just let you figure out what you were gonna.
2: No, that's that that's fine. I, I had already gotten pretty close on it. So thirty-five percent. I'm going to go lower than you. I'm going to say fifteen percent.
1: Yeah. It's just so. It's just so high. Well, well I didn't say. I said twenty percent. Yeah. And so I'm going to go. 50. The 30, thirty that they would have. Thirty-five uh, or more. Thirty-five or more. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's but yeah, it's it it's an interesting. I mean, because there is a lot of push for getting into the play-in, and and these teams, honestly, like another motivator is that there is reason to believe that they are that they could make it out of the plane this isn't just to get it and throw it in I'd be like if the knicks could make it in there's a reasonable belief that they could get in and then we know who gets the one and two you probably are cannon fodder anyway but you could do all that um, but let's get to the the games that they played against the Celtics. I focused more on the game they played on Saturday rather than well, the one well, that was on Thursday. Really,
1: really quickly here, first in the Knicks. Sure. 11% chance of making the playoffs per Raptor and 19%. Sure, Raptors. absolutely. Um, that's, uh, that's low.
2: The game on Saturday, I think that you could think of it as the 80s game because the possession count was in the 80s. The refereeing was from the 80s and the offensive ratings were about that level too, well, at least for the Knicks. Thank <laughs> you. I,
1: so well, early the, on, the possession count was in the 80s, but it was from the 90s.
2: Yes, well, I guess that's 90s. probably more true. Um, but oh my, my goodness, I mean, it was it was a lot of a lot of hand checking. I was the I had the I had the Boston feed on, not by choice, but I think it was NBA TV, and that's the one they put on. And um, Scalabrine was talking. He was he was noticing something that we've talked a lot about a lot this season, where it's like they're calling more fouls around the basket than they are the hand checking and stuff on the perimeter, and that helped that helped the Celtics because they have kind of different attackers. They were able to get the ball inside a couple of really nice entry passes from Jalen Brown to Robert Williams. But I thought one of the big stories of Saturday's game was Julius Randall struggles. And it's, important to note that the Celtics are a really tough matchup for him because they have a lot of guys that, that he can't overpower or like necessarily over speed and they also have good help defense so he just wasn't able to create advantages and was settling for some bad shots through some truly heinous passes and ended up with 13 points on six of 19 from the field and six turnovers I thought it was a, a brutal game for him and they needed Randall to do more because of the aforementioned point guard limitations
1: quickly yeah, and, and, and on Randall Uh, he Fred Katz noted this that it was really it's back to when Randall is going to be at his worst they had a big center on the floor at all times they always do next to him who can't shoot and so it was just the Celtics did a great job Robert Williams hanging out around the rim and just forcing him into those difficult jump shots and step backs which he hit at even I think how well his overall numbers were on those it was like 41% or something on mid-range jumpers last year and the big outlier was the 42% on threes last year which he, he took a lot of but now he's been so bad on those this year and he also had to take a lot of them in this game and it was one eight from three as well it was just so much outside the paint and then when he tried to get into the paint of course so then you had the six turnovers.
2: yeah and the, the Celtics did a nice job contesting shots around the basket and I thought that Emmanuel quickly especially early didn't he, he did a nice job as a scorer but then he, he needed to do more creation and that part wasn't really there I think a lot of that is credit to the Celtics defense and then the Celtics defense just kicked it into a Another gear after that. I thought they, the second quarter, Josh Richardson, Marcus Smart was fabulous. And then the, you know, the overall team stuff, Robert Williams had some blocks and they had Horford out there. So they had a lot of help. And then the Knicks just ground to a halt. They didn't break the 20 point barrier in any quarter after the first. 16, 18, 15. Jalen Brown got triple double, 22, 11, and 11. I thought that he was had some really nice passes. My favorite of his stuff was interior passes to Robert Williams. Like there was one where Williams got an early seal and he passed it over the front, which was really nice, and got got an easy dunk and a couple of those in transition, and was found Marcus Smart for 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 a big three as well so for Boston like yeah this is you know they can play some this wasn't necessarily the most inspiring offensive performance for them though I thought they did fine it was more the defensive end where they could put together but it was also interesting Keith Smith noticed noticed this in his recap that Ime Udoka who also notably criticized the team before the game for not executing the scouting report that he had against the Knicks which is weird for a coach to say to the media because it's like is that really who you need yeah, to convince he, you uh,
1: he, Ime does not fuck around with these he'll give it to you straight he will apparently
2: and and so in Saturday's game Marcus Smart and Dennis Schroeder never played together they basically staggered those two guys and Jalen Brown was creating enough Uh, they had the ball in Horford's hands a fair amount which um, Jalen Brown has approved of come with other guys have said so as well and yeah, I thought I thought that worked reasonably well. They had more shooting on the floor. They were twelve of twenty-nine. Although, also the Knicks were six of fifteen on free throws, including RJ Barrett being one of five. That was weird.
1: Um, yeah, Barrett forty-three minutes somehow in a twenty-four point loss. Forty-three minutes, and he was seven to twenty-one was, from the field. Yeah, though and, he
2: did, and, though he did bank in the game winner in the way more fun game on Friday when they came.
1: Oh, back. oh, but but was he, was, he was able to. Yeah, he was able to bake, bank in that winner because. Because... You know he's just so confident in those moments, Danny. That's why he was able to bank that in. That like he just that only his confidence enabled him to miss the shot so badly that he was off by three feet, and it just happened to bank in. Without that confidence, he never could have done that. Yeah, so I, 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 I I did I, I saw I, some I, tweets to that effect, and I was just like, Are you fucking kidding me? He banked it. In. He got lucky. Also, the, like, like like the fact that he would get more credit for like his makeup or whatever for missing the shot by three feet than a guy who would just have it rim in and out is is. Prop- to me, like the guy who had it rimming it out actually did his job a thousand it's, times.
2: It's not even R.J. R.J. resolved so yeah. process, it's just that it happened to go in, it wasn't what he intended to do. By the way, RJ Barrett 54 true shooting last year on 23 usage, 50 true shooting on 25 usage so far this year, and that's mostly a drop from three 40% to 34 percent on. On a higher volume this year, so it's something we're not talking about RJ Barrett at this point, but something to keep an eye on. Also, we got, unfortunately we didn't get to see Evan Fournier in Nick Celtics four because Fournier dropped thirty plus points in all three of the games he played against his most recent former team, and he missed the opportunity for Sean Grandy to become only the fourth sorry third player fourth instance in NBA history for a player to score. 30 plus four times on the Celtics. MJ and Allen Iverson are the only two players that have ever done it.
1: Um, let's sort of the Celtics here. 19 and 21 as well, six and seven since the last 15 and 60. We talked about how they managed to blow that Spurs game. Then they managed to blow the Knicks game right after that. Although it was very good defense by Jason Tatum at the end. And as as mentioned, that was kind of an unlucky result. So and those they've basically been whole now for about a week. They had a couple of those really rough losses. They've been very bad, including game so far this this season uh but they are 12 in the nba net rating 1.9 20th on offense but fifth on defense and this is one where hey again if they could just be a top five defense and just improve that offense a little bit you could start getting to this te- where this team could play at a 50 win type of pace the rest of the season they project for 43 wins which would be a tie for seventh in the east so they look like they maybe play inbound and then raptor 65 percent chance of the playoffs elo only 49% again liking their players better than their results as with the Hawks uh quickly you mentioned and we talked some about them already but you mentioned Josh Richardson's defense making a difference in the second quarter against the Knicks what did you see from him there
2: I thought he was really getting into guys on the ball, but also disruptive in passing lanes. The Knicks just didn't, they didn't have enough kind of creation. So I thought they were, they were stagnating with him and Marcus Smart. I thought he did it. did a nice job overall. Not, not perfect, but um, com- yeah, competitive. And I think, yeah, I think he had, think he had a help like block the, too.
1: Yeah. That's the thing that really has been missing the most from him is like, you would, when he was playing for the heat, like you would just feel him out there. If he was guarding someone, I still remember, for example, what he did and this is way early in his career, but what he did to Jeremy in in the playoff series against Charlotte back in 2016 where he just he could just you know if it was an elite guy yeah maybe he wasn't going to lock him down but if it was someone who's just kind of a run of the mill point guard he could really take that guy out of the game with his pressure and ability to get around screens and obviously he's a much older player now etc but so yeah it's good to hear that you thought he was able to make a difference yeah defense. I did uh, what else do you have on the Celtics from that game anything
2: there was a there, was, a, talk there was an incredible play where quickly broke by and was trying to throw a layup up and I genuinely have no idea how Robert Williams got to it. Like, it was, I, 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 he got to it before it hit the backboard. It was probably not going to go in in the first place, but Williams, you know, that length, that defensive potential is still absolutely incredible. Um, Something I didn't like that the Celtics did, I understand why it's a part of their defense and the Knicks are, especially when they're a little shorthanded, they're anomalous in this. I thought the Celtics in, did a little bit too much over helping where they, the original guy, they have good defenders and you kind of need to trust them that they have things contained. And then they helped like one man away. And so, oh, that they created an easy pass. Like there was one from Randall to Quickly where Randall was pretty well contained. I think it was Jalen Brown was, was do- and so you he helped off of him. I think it was Marcus Smart, who unbelievable defender who did well overall in this game. But those sorts of things, understanding that the situation and I, I, it's hard from a coaching perspective, but sometimes I think you have to trust your teammates a little bit more, especially when the other team's creators aren't doing well because they were giving up more. Open shots and the shots that they were scared of giving up, and it didn't end up mattering. I mean, the defense was great in the last three quarters. We only saw a little bit of Aaron Nesmith. There was a point when in the early going, when Udoka was trying to kind of figure some stuff out, but also Grant Williams. I thought it was a solid performance from him. Contributed some defensively, made a couple threes.
1: Yeah, Jalen Brown got his triple double, of course, with the 11 assists. I think that's the first triple double of his career. He got emphasized a little bit more than Jason Tatum in this game in the Thursday it- game. Jason Tatum was the one that are running everything through down the end. And I mean, that was, they definitely blew that game against New York. You know, they led by what, did they lead by tw- as many as 25, I think on Thursday. I
2: know it was more than 20. It might've been 25. Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, and, and the Knicks, I mean, that led to, Oh yeah. Yeah. Here, let's talk about this briefly. I mean, this is the biggest deal. Actually, no, we'll, we'll save that for, for the news segment, the, the whole Randall booing, getting fined thing. Um, let's move on to our next team though, here. And that is the you- Washington, Wizards the Wizards are 19 and 24 and 7 since the last 15 and 60 they continue their relative free fall since that 10 and 3 start they've had some better moments they've also just been missing guys in the protocols Dinwiddie has been out as well we talked about their loss to Houston which was a pretty rough one that could end up mattering a lot uh 23rd in net rating negative 2.2 21st on offense 22nd on defense again remember where they were oh how are they doing a top five defense like this could really be sad no no, it's not. They still product for 38 wins, though, which would be a tie for the eleven seed, but they're yeah, pretty close there to being in the play-in at least. 15% chance of the playoffs per Raptor and 29% per Elo. What's the latest news on these guys?
2: Well, so the good news... For them is that the Wizards are pretty close to full strength now. They got Dinwiddie back. Um, Rui Hashimura should be close to making his debut. He's out of the protocols now. Montres Harrell's just about out, and Thomas Bryant should be back in the next week. Plus, that does create a potential challenge for Wes On Jr. Because the Wizards have always had this overstuffed front court in terms of players that they intend to play. They've just not all been available at the same point. And that challenge has actually, I would say, been made more difficult based on how the season has gone. Because you know, Kuzma's been playing well, he's had twenty plus points in each of his last six though incidentally his true shooting and usage are almost identical to last to his career averages you know so he's doing a little bit worse from three a little bit better from two but he's been productive when they've asked him to do more he's done well and then Avdia is I I would say he's having a good a good second year as well so it's not only though a Wes Unseld decision it's also a Tommy Shepard decision and so Rui Hachimura was a very high draft pick of this same administration basically and does he now get entitlement minutes when he returns Thomas Bryant signed by this general regime and given a big role, but they've brought in Gafford and Harold during the time that he's been out.
1: Some of this... Brian's supposed to be back in the next couple of weeks now.
2: Yeah, next week plus. And so...
1: Oh yeah, sorry, you just said yeah, that. Yeah,
2: it's okay. Um, and, and so for Unsell, there's a part of this, but then it's also potentially partially resolved by Tommy Shepard, which is, do you trade one or more of these pieces? You know, you could move Montres Harrell at or around the deadline. I think they're going to keep Gafford. And then Bertans is still out. He's dealing with a foot foot thing. We don't know the timeline there. So you could say having a lot of options is good as long as the, as if they're winning games, the players probably won't complain too much. And also like they've been doing some stuff like playing KCP at the three. You can play a little bit bigger if you want to now. But if Colmable Pope is one of your best players, then it gets even more thorny. So it's it is a potential challenge. There's also the interesting thing that um, I, I've called this an audience of one decision that Brian Windhorst rep- on his podcast saying earlier this week that Bradley Beale's name isn't even coming up in trade rumors. So. Yeah. Considering he is a potentially pending free agent, he could opt out and sign a new contract. That probably says something from both his perspective and from the Wizards' perspective. As a basketball fan, it's a little bit disappointing that he's cool with this. But if that's what he wants, more power to him.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that, of course, uh, ad nauseum. I I thought they actually played a pretty good game against the Bulls.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: On Friday, they lost in Chicago to the now number one seed Bulls, one twenty-two, one thirty. But they shot seven out of twenty-four from three. It's still, there's always this feeling that these guys should be getting up more three pointers than they do. Dinwiddie was back, played thirty-one minutes. That'll be some, his performance. Will be something really moderate. He did get to the foul line more, which he had been struggling with, and he was actually in the positive. And it was just the Bulls going forty-six percent from three, while the Wizards went twenty-nine percent, seven out of twenty-four. But to put up a buck twenty-two, even while shooting that poorly, three is encouraging, and you know, Io DeSumo and Kobe White going a combined 7-of-8 from downtown. It ended up killing them. Uh, the, last, a, the last thing I want to discuss...
2: Yeah, I want to talk yeah. just briefly about their defense. This is something that was a curiosity for me. Dean Oliver's four factors, the most important of them on offense and defense is, is effective field goal percentage, whether it's offensive or defensive. The Wizards are actually 10th in that, and so you're like, okay, the Wizards are 10th in that, but they're 22nd in defense. How is that happening? They are... Second to last in opponent free throw attempt rate, they're giving up a ton of fouls. Minnesota's the only team that's giving up a higher rate there. And they don't force any turnovers. I believe they're 28th now. They were 29th before before that game against the Bulls. So... What happens there, so you're like, okay, the shots they're giving up aren't—their the opponents aren't making a ton of those, but they're getting more shots up because you're not forcing turnovers, and they're getting a ton of free throws. Free throws are generally high-value things. So that's how, you're, that's how your defense can be shaky or bad, even if you're doing the most important thing well, whether
1: it's luck or— Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear— formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a show room rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear, outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen fortune the number eight seed right now in the eastern conference is the charlotte hornets what are their fundamentals? the hornets are 21 and 19 so two games over 500 sixth and
2: six since the last 15 60 slightly positive net rating 0.1 which is 16th and it's the split third on offense 25th on defense um because it's... ELO, so the 538 models like them more for how they played than their players. 56% chance of making the playoffs. ELO, 39% Raptor, which thinks they will tie... They will have the 10th seed, so they would still make the play-in. And the place you want to start here, which is interesting, um, I, I, I mean, is their big acquisition from 2020, Gordon Hayward.
1: Yeah, and it, we have been quite as wrong on the Hayward acquisition, so far at least, as the DeRozan acquisition. Now, w- worth noting that... That the Hornets also didn't have to give up a first and, and a couple of seconds and, and a good player to get Gordon Hayward. But, you know, four year, $120 million deal. A big reason we are concer- concerned about acquiring him was his health. And yeah, that reared its head last year. But this year, he's played 39 games, which is he's been rock solid for them. Hasn't been in the protocols. And, or, or if he was, it was a, a very short sin. I can't, remember I, I can't, I should never bring that up because I'm just going to be wrong on that. But obviously, playing 39 games hasn't had any kind of a major injury issue so far this season what are your thoughts on what's the report card on the hayward acquisition uh call it a year and a half in.
2: i would say overall it's been better than i anticipated you know his efficiency has been in line with what gordon hayward has done when he's been available you know in the celtics years and the late jazz years 58 59 true shooting You know, low 20s usage and capable defense, not the greatest defender, but not the guy who's who's making it not work out there and so the bigger so the concerns were availability and aging and so far age 31 season is going reasonably well and the availability has been better than expected overall but he know he did only play 44 games last year and hayward being out as a part of why they didn't make the playoffs
1: yeah i think if you just look at now let's keep in mind also they stretched nick batum as well these first three years so you got you got to kind of think at least from their perspective not his trade value but from their perspective they're kind of paying him 40 million dollars a year like that's that's the opportunity Cost is $40 million, not $30 million. However, for Hayward, I, I think maybe he's not been a $30 million a year player, but he's certainly, I think, when healthy, been a $25 million a year player. I think that seems pretty clear to me. You know, he just has a lot of versatility to his game and they haven't used him on ball as much as you might expect but he's still very capable there he can run pick and roll come off a of handoff he can iso they'll generally it's probably on the scouting report for all opposing teams just like twice a game they'll run a little uh, ato especially if the other team is hiding a smaller player on him they'll have a smaller player screen for him and then he'll just bury his guy in the post for a, a quick post up uh so he just he gives you a lot of different ways to attack the defense and attack a scramble defense and keep the defense honest because you can't hide someone on. I mean, that's one of the things that makes Charlotte so difficult to deal with. I mean, you look at that starting lineup of Ball, Rozier, Bridges, and Hayward. How many teams have four guys in the starting lineup that are all capable of doing something with the ball the way those guys can? And good shooters. Yeah and, yeah, and can play off the ball and shoot it as well. I mean, that, There's a reason these guys are number two in offense, despite, I mean, they may not even have a guy that we're going to pick to make the all-star team. But uh, now, of course, the defense is the bigger problem. And you know, I wouldn't really say many of these guys have been above average for their position. I think Hayward can be okay in a larger scheme, but he's, the way they're playing, they can get attacked a lot. And then they'll go P.J. Washington at center too. And you're just, I, I mean, I would say the biggest defensive problem with those four guys and P.J. Washington at center is P.J. Washington like PJ Washington isn't really a center it's just he's big and maybe can rebound a little bit at, but also obviously he can shoot it but he's just not a center defensively it's just they think the trade-off is better to have him at center than to go with Plumlee and it, the defense has obviously been way way better with, with Plumlee on the floor this year uh, but I, so I think they've gotten more than could be expected I would say maybe a little bit more out of Hayward so far now there's two years left on this deal but I think the bigger criticism wasn't even so much paying Hayward that much we thought it was probably I think Hayward was uh, was viewed maybe more as a 20 to 25 million dollar player over the life of that contract but hey you got to overpay for guys in free agency that's okay it was just more the stretching of Batum to add 10 million dollars onto your bill the next for the first three years of that deal and then also just for a team that was we thought at least wasn't ready to win now so just in terms of the general concept of signing Hayward what, what do you make of that now as we're a year and a half in, that is where
2: I think the criticism still feels valid because the idea was, what is he gonna give them? And Labella was way better in year one than we expected. Some of that was Ball just being better, some of it was they had a more favorable ecosystem, they had better offensive talent, Hayward really did help that. But maybe he propels you into the playoffs for one year. and you get your butts kicked? Maybe win one game. Like, I'd say that's, depending on how the seating breaks out, that seems like a reasonable outcome for me for the Hornets. It's entirely possible, based on how close you said, I agree with you that these teams are tightly bunched, that they don't make the playoffs at all, that they lose in the play-in or don't even make the play-in. I think, depending on health, they probably should. So that's what you got for the two years that are the best two years of this deal. And so that, to me, that is the bigger, the the better criticism is could have gotten somebody who makes makes more sense or built the asset base or just been worse? and gotten some better picks out of it because they you know were better last year they got james book Knight. maybe they could have ended up with a higher draft pick and somebody who could be a part of their future
1: yeah well that that's the biggest thing right is if they didn't have hayward last year then maybe they're i don't i mean i think they had some other decent players like i don't think they would have been a top four worse maybe they just get some lottery luck and bump up it maybe they're like the. Four.
2: maybe they get the eighth pick or something like that
1: yeah i mean certainly if they could have gotten a top four pick as a result having not signed Hayward, you would say, absolutely, they would love to have one of Cunningham, Green, Mobley, or Barn much more so than Hayward, even if they lost it, more games last year. I don't think, hey, the, you, you made the play and congratulations, you got you got to extend your season one more day, go to Indiana and get blown out by 35. Uh, did you Do you really feel that much better about it at, afterwards than if you just, you know, I, I don't know.
2: That game right. stayed in, that the margin of that game stayed in your memory for a lot longer than me because it stayed in my memory for about two hours.
1: But I mean, if you just, lo- if you look at the, the the top eight of last year's draft, which I think they would have been in the top eight had they not, and maybe they would have not gotten the same guys. But if had they been in the top eight, and you know, still could have had an encouraging season last year, but probably would have been in the top eight. Four of those five guys are looking pretty good. I think even Jalen Green is is coming down. Well, and, and, and,
2: and not yeah. not only that, but think about all the money because instead of stretching Batum's last season, it just comes off the books
1: right yeah that's true so so then you consider the option not like there was a great free agent class last year but they could have maybe tried to get into the taking on bad money game that's not as lucrative as it used to be but yeah they they would have a better idea what they needed i mean we just talked about how good franz wagner is franz wagner might be gordon hayward for the next 15 years right and also probably better defensively not quite the same player but somewhat similar feel to him or you know josh giddy or jonathan comingo would be a really nice fit with what they want to do long term I, I would say so yeah ultimately i think they and, and honestly danny because we said okay what's the point of this there's a big opportunity cost here so they can win six more games they're still not even be close to the playoffs all right that was wrong and and also by the way if if hayward and Lamelo don't go down last year they would have been would have had home court in the play-in and had a decent chance of make a playoff would to obviously immediately get destroyed <laughs> but by the box or, or the nets but that even worked out better right if they i mean even if they had just brought in Hayward and then maybe they still could have been in the top eight and maybe that's what they thought would happen they'd get that pick but so it's almost the fact that he's been better and it's overall for the team they've been better that's almost worse for the long-term future of this group and now this 2021 draft where you're as of right now we're like man seven of those eight guys would have really helped any team to like change potentially what their future could look like at least a little bit that's rare and some of those guys could still go awry and and all that but yeah I guess we've talked about this long enough but it's. Still, even though he's been integral and been exactly what they wanted him to be, and has kind of gotten their franchise back on the map, they're over five hundred, we're ahead of schedule in the long term. I still think it was the wrong move. As we think about it more, I expected to come to a different conclusion. But you know, if they were, and that's and that's where they're different from the Derozan thing, because the Bulls the number one seed right now. And exactly. all right, if you're if you're if you're going to be a top four seed, okay, yeah, then it's worth it to go for it. And that shows the folly of quote unquote going for Now we should mention this too, Danny. If they ever wanted to trade him, they could get it for him and maybe even maybe even two honestly
2: I think so. the timing on that might be very important let's jump to the raptors though the raptors are now 19-17, and 6-3 and three since the last 15-60. They're up to a plus 1.4 net rating. That's 13th. 11th on offense, 20th on defense. The Raptor model is more positive on them than Elo. Um, believes that their players a little bit more. 44 wins, which would be 6th in the Eastern Conference. But even with the 6 seed, 64% chance of making the playoffs. And another example of the Raptors' even stronger home court advantage, um, the Pelicans didn't send Josh Hart to Toronto because because not because he has tested positive he has not but because they close contacted and they didn't want him to get stuck in Canada so they didn't do that we already brought up the jazz being spectacularly shorthanded against them so I you know it's it is a it is a fluky circumstance but I mean the Raptors are making the most of it which is good for them and another thing they are making the most of is Fred Van Vliet's awesome season and he I mean he's been he's been great to start it and it's 20 22 points 7 assists 24 usage those are those are all like the highest of his career but as was the case a couple of years ago for his teammate Pascal Siakam, the increase in role has also been followed by an increase in efficiency. So it's up to 59% true shooting, which would be the best of Van Fleet's career as well.
1: Yeah, and certainly I'm going to dive into this later this week much more with Hollinger, but I expect him to be a very solid all-star candidate, despite the Raptors crew calling him Freddy All-Star. And I was asked, about maybe I wasn't even asked, about. I might have just come up in the chat how absolutely ridiculous it is that they're calling him freddy all-star when a he hasn't even made the all-star team yet like okay maybe if he's made the all-star team already you can start calling him that to just do it as a lobbying and just to, to build it it's just so myopic right like do you think that on the broadcast are like okay we really went through here and we picked we went through and said okay here's where he should be Let, let's rank him in the east and it's just like oh he's playing really well let's push him for the all-star team and we're gonna call him that and then of course every one local if he were to not make it would get incredibly pissed off which you know, again I'll, I'll look through his case more so relative to the other players I, it, there's, as you're going to get into he's clearly having a great season but just to call him that when he hasn't made that's just such a small time market like you're the Toronto Raptors you're in the fourth largest market in North America you won the championship in 2019 like you don't need to do this local ass bullshit I was watching I couldn't even watch synergy highlights of him I had to mute it because <laughs> every and Anytime he made a shot, it was Freddie All-Star from the corner. No, his name's Fred Van Vliet.
2: And to me, it distracts from just, it's it's a side thing for him having a legitimately really good year, and... So I was interested in what's driving this combination of higher usage and higher efficiency. And while part of it is, you know, Van Vliet's shooting 41% from three on roughly the highest three-point volume of his career, there are a couple of seasons around this that he's done, bigger drivers actually improve two-point shooting. He's 44% from two career, 49% this year. And one big part of that is he is doing better around the basket. 67% is a career high, much better but that's only about a fifth of the twos that Van Vliet takes. I think it's roughly 10% of the shots overall. Instead, the bigger swing is long twos. And so Van Vliet, his career high before this year of a full season is 39% on what cleaning the glass calls long twos. He's at 58% 58% so far this year. That feels anomalous, even though there is some improvement, and can players do that in their H-27 season? Sure. I mean, it's, it's possible. That doesn't mean that he's, like, not at all star or anything like that. It does mean, though, that there is, I would expect some regression to the mean, but the numbers are just, some of the overall stuff here is just wild. 1.6 points per possession on catch and shoot is phenomenal. That's 99th percentile. And then over 1 point per possession on pull-ups, fantastic, also. So I, you know, like the idea of whether he's an all-star or not, I'm thinking of it more in the abstract. I think he has played at an all-star level, depending on depending on if there's like an absurd number of good guards in the East, which I don't think there are. Um, but... I think we celebrate his good year without the label. That's just the way we do it.
1: Well, we can. I, I'll be willing to say that he should make the All-Star team when I actually really do the work to go through and compare him to everyone else. He's been awesome in the impact metrics. Or hey, if he actually makes the All-Star too, then I think sure. you, can, you can acknowledge him as that. But this is like, that's some Sacramento Kings shit to call him Freddie All-Star. You've got Kawhi Leonard playing for your team and DeMar DeRozan. And they Kyle won a championship Curry. a couple of years ago. You, you got guys who make the All-Star team and start the All-Star team. Team every year, just don't, and yeah, it'd be a great accomplishment for Fred Van Vliet to be undrafted. Nobody saw him going this at this point, but just, just and yeah, you know, do your if you want to do like a short segment of like, hey, you know, Fred should make the Ulster team. Oh, yes, absolutely, he should, but to just have it be like corrupt the entire broadcast in that way to turn turn it into propaganda when just in the normal call of the game action, that's just way just such Homer crap. I really, it's, I, this is, I would say, I've never been annoyed more at a local broadcast team than by this I can't think of anything else where I just watching a highlight I was like I can't or or watching on synergy I like and this is just like clips of Van Vliet was I wasn't even watching the full game
0: at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Anything more you want to say on Van Fleet, or should we
1: move on to the number six team in the East? Yeah, the number six team in the Eastern Conference is the Cleveland Cavaliers. Ooh, baby?
2: Yeah, Cavs 16 and 12 on the season, 6 and 5 since the last 15-60. We of course talked about that game which they lost to the Memphis Grizzlies, so that was in the five. Um their plus 5 net rating is fourth in the NBA. Um Cleveland 15th on offense, monster third on defense, and Elo 85% chance of being in the playoffs, Raptors just 52% it thinks they'll be tied for the 7th seed. I'm more optimistic than the than the Raptor model. I I, it's, I think the Raptor model is doing what I did, where it just thought their players weren't as good, and their players are better than that. Um, and part of that is, is is Darius Garland. I mean, so just to get the numbers on that, 113.3 cleaning the glass net rate, or not net rating, offensive rating, when Garland is on the floor, that's really good. Like, that's about, that's the 74th percentile, so, you know, three quarters of the league, and it drops, this has been part of one of the challenges for the Cavs, it drops to a 106 when garland is off the floor not having sexton has hurt that now rubio's out for the year and hopefully rajon rondo can not fix but help some of that
1: yeah rondo played in their nice win in portland although obviously no mccollum or lillard for the blazers but any road win on a west coast trip is solid they they took care of it pretty easily and rondo just basically played your normal point guard minutes uh, and he had 11 points which was good to see uh, plus five in the the plus, minus played 17 minutes in he didn't play down the end uh, he actually closed the first half as they played him and garland together so rondo's probably gonna be an upgrade uh, on what pangos uh, was giving them i think they're still trying to find more help there uh, as a ball handler i if i'm just trying to get better this year though i think i would actually be prioritizing finding a solid veteran option at the two who can also defend more and actually start for you more than i would just be looking for another guy who can do something off the dribble and then you just live with Rondo as your backup point guard and I, I thought Brian Windhorst had an interesting thought or it was on his pod I'm not sure if it was he or, or one of the other guys who mentioned it uh, with uh, Eric Gordon as a potentially good stopgap there and he's also under contract for next year what would you think of the possibility of the Cavs acquiring Eric Gordon?
2: I like it Gordon can obviously shoot he can do the catch and shoot stuff but I've liked what he's done as an on-ball creator so the Cavs need that more like so he does more of that in the short term and then the long term if they solve this problem differently they get Sexton and retain him you know for next year then you could maybe do something different with Gordon but also defensively we've brought up the importance of having a capable guard next to Garland instead of it being Sexton and so basically you kind of run either Gordon or Coro out there and so I like it also on the idea of somebody who can help but who doesn't have so who who isn't like mandatory play at all key moments and so while I think Gordon should be out there Sure. If a Coro blossoms and is playing well, has some good moments, or is a particularly good defensive fit for who you're facing in that moment, sure, play
1: Yeah, with a, a Coro out in the midst of a two-to-three-week absence, it's been Lamar Stevens starting. He's been getting mostly the, the Keith Bogans. He got a very short stint in the second quarter in that Portland game, then only got, got the Keith Bogans second. And the closing lineup was interesting. They went with Jetty Osman at the two, and I think JB is just going to have have to for the time being i think just do the closing lineup on, on a game by game basis if the other team doesn't have a wing that they really are struggling to guard or a pick and roll point guard that they're really struggling to guard which i mean most teams are going to have either a good wing or a good pick and roll point guard but they also have they're also playing the two bigs together behind them and so maybe they're just like hey we will we'll give up some mid-rangers that's okay and then we'll either play marketing or love at the three probably marketing he's got at least a little bit more mobility defensively and then just that two position will be a revolving door I don't think they'll go with Stevens maybe they'll look at Rondo in the time being that maybe it'll be a Coro um or maybe it'll be Osman. maybe more likely to be Osman. honestly Osman actually played the last 18 minutes he got the Miritich we had a Bogans and a Miritich and, and a lot of times those those go together in fact in fact Osmond replaced Stevens in the second half and then just never came out of the game and had a nice game with 14 points played 31 minutes and he's as, as we talked but on previous 15 and 60s, had a, a nice really can do a little bit of pick and roll it gives them maybe enough ball handling there so offensively I think you feel pretty decent about that group it's just Osman and Garland as your defense backcourt that's leaving a lot for Mobley and Allen to clean up but they are quite capable there as well let's say these guys uh, to finish up the Gordon discussion and I you know I think I don't think it would make sense for them to give up a first-round pick to get someone like Eric Gordon. I think Agreed. they Have other they have other resources going forward. and then there's a team like maybe the Lakers where it would make sense to give that up. Teams that are just more more into it.
2: Well, and with right and with now. Kevin Love's play, you know, I don't know if offloading the last year of his salary is as valuable as it was before.
1: No, i don't think to. and in fact i would say that kevin love is probably more valuable right now to the cabs than to anybody else so uh but but let's say they were to acquire because this is part of the calculation right is not only was it cost to give up this guy but where are we once we do this so let's say they get in a semi-decent two. you know what if they i mean this is i don't think they're doing but let's say they trade for like norm powell or something, uh to start him at the two and they keep him around they're, the idea would be to bring in off the bench next year also play him as a backup one what do you see these guys being able to do in the playoffs do you think that they is there any way that as a playoff team they're better than chicago miami milwaukee or brooklyn to actually win a series
2: miami milwaukee brooklyn i think will be tough and the the bulls and i think that Cavs team would actually be pretty well situated to defend them like you'd have a lot around the rim and you have some other guys that can be disruptive i would have them as the underdog and so then it becomes do you give up those assets to now i i think they're going to get some real playoff experience here now especially If the Cavs can be top six, which right now they're tied with the Raps in the loss column. So it's not like that is set in stone, though they have the fourth best net rating in the NBA. So I think it would help. But I don't know that I would pick them to win a series, especially when they're probably not going to have home court. I could be wrong, though. I've been wrong on the Cavs the whole damn time. How do you feel?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I would, I, I mean, and also there could be injuries, of course, too, which is a, a big part of this, but I would make them underdogs against, I guess you could throw Philly into that mix, too, and Philly may make a trade. Yeah, that would be interesting, Cavs versus Sixers, although it doesn't seem like there's really going to be a way for those teams to match up, I don't think, unless the Bucks, Heat, or Nets, or Bulls, like, really fall off. I think that's looking like a pretty decent chance, like, that's going to be kind of our locked-in top four, but maybe, maybe a trade by the Sixers could change that seems like the Cavs are more destined for the sixth seed at this point Raptors are coming on too though so that'll be that'll be something to watch they're actually tied in the last count with the Raptors but the Raptors have had some games canceled so they're in 1917 but the Cavs also have a very easy schedule going forward which is part of this but I think they're looking at either the fifth of the sixth seed so they're not going to have home court and maybe a slight chance of getting up to four but I, I just and, and then even if we're talking about them having a little more confidence of the two they're just this is also a team that doesn't have any playoff experience experience really among the, their main guys. And then there's such a weird team. And I think that can work in the regular season, but particularly offensively, they are not really built to be a playoff team yet. They just have too many weaknesses, too many one way players, but that's fine. That I mean, that is no problem with that. There's a great season for the Cavs. They feel great about their future that with their core, but I still don't think it really makes sense as I've been maintaining for a while to, to really push in because I just, I don't see, I don't think you're winning a playoff series anyway. Like maybe you lose in six instead of five in the first round and have a puncher's champ who's next here i guess uh we got to get to the sixers
2: yes the philadelphia 76ers are next on the list they are 22 and 16 on the season a strong seven and three since the last 15 and 60 they are 10th in net rating at plus 2.4 Field more by their offense than their defense we've talked about that in the past uh they're ninth in offense 14th in defense They're looking like a playoff team. Both models really like them. 50 wins would be tied for fourth. That's according to Raptor. And just a small little stat on them that I found interesting is the Raptors, or sorry not the Raptors, the Sixers, are the second worst, they're actually tied with the Bulls for last, offensive rebounding team in the entire NBA.
1: Yeah, Joel, who's been playing really well, we're going to talk about him more in a second, his offensive rebounding is down. And it's surprising when they employ Andre Drummond, but he's really the only offensive rebounder on the whole team. Right. And we've also remarked on how their defensive rebounding has struggled their backcourt is is small it is quite a departure for this team that we just think oh good defensive team ton of length etc obviously they don't have Ben Simmons anymore but going back to the that 2019 team where it's like oh this is one of the biggest teams that we've seen and then in that 2019 offseason they doubled down on being big and huge and defensive and just being hard to play against and they're not really very hard to play against anymore other than guarding Joel Embiid uh one of the biggest I looked at Embiid's last 15 games he's played in 14 of them which is is certainly nice and his numbers compared to last year relatively similar at this point in time his numbers over the last 15 games i wanted to really see because i I thought what made him so unguardable last year was that he became an elite mid-range shooter on those face-up plays and so you basically just had to double team the other thing that he has probably been doing i would say better than any point in his career is passing the ball he's at 4.3 assists per game and he was at 2.8 last Year, you had a couple of awesome passes in their last game to Matisse Seibel for big highlight jams just quick over the shoulder passes to cutters and he's doing better finding guys on the weak side also it's a lot easier to assist guys and assist guys directly when they actually have more modern NBA spacing so I would say the one thing that I think is objectively better for him this year is his playmaking and of course Ben Simmons hasn't had the ball as much anymore either so and I think there's maybe something to the idea that they really aren't a very good passing team and so that's kind of hurt his ability to get the ball in the spots that he's wanted to and the two-point percentage is better than it was but it's still slightly under 50 percent. and last year was a career high 54 percent. and the big difference there of course was in the mid-range shooting a, a year ago he was 50% on twos outside of 16 feet. He was 48%, 10 to 16 feet. And then also from floater range, 44%. Those numbers, long twos, 40% this year. So down 10%, down 6% from 10 to 15 feet and down 7% from floater range. I thought, okay, maybe he was just off at the beginning of the year. Let me look at the last 15 games. Well, on twos outside of the paint, he's still only at 43%, which is still better. That's above league average. But,
2: but that's guess. that's broadly in line with his career averages before that. So MP. And- just this, sure. this year, um, 42% on 10 to 16, 42% career, 40% versus 42 from 60. So, like, basically last, last year, it's sort of Julius randle e where it's like, last year was so much better, and you hope that that was just the new normal, and maybe it wasn't.
1: Yeah. Now, he is shooting a career high from 3 at 39%, but the volume has not been a huge amount. He's on track to exceed his volume from last year, but we're only talking about 90 attempts here, so if he just missed 3 more attempts than he has, that just shows you the volatility of that stat and that's why we say hey 750 attempts is when you kind of get to the this is the number but he was 38% last year 39% this year so it's starting to feel like at least he's above what his career average is which is 33% and that's important here's the other big difference from last year his post up numbers are still relatively similar they are at 1.04 points per possession, 74th percentile this year. Last year he was 83rd percentile, but that was 1.08. So it's definitely lower than it was last year when he was just absolutely unstoppable in the post, highest volume and one of the highest. Uh, of I think he might have been the highest efficiency high volume guy that was out there. Still, really not that effective as a pick and roll roll man. Many of those plays come out of more pick and pop than a, a lot of bigs. As a spot up guy, he's actually been a little bit better this year but he doesn't take very many catch and shoot shots overall but the big difference is this isolation game has been a lot worse this year and in particular it's his isolation drive game yeah this year all right let's start with last year first when he drove out of iso either for to put the ball on the floor and pull up or get all the way to the rim he was 35 out of 69 and he got followed he still gets fouled a shit right he still he gets he got followed a third of the time on those isolation drives last year that's about the same this year so that actually saves his efficiency some but when he actually shoots on drives this year he was over 50 percent last year on shots out of drives um I shouldn't say drives because that's a little bit different than the NBA. Tracking data drive. This is basically on an ISO where he doesn't just shoot it right, which he's also he's awesome at by the way. Right, that's I've said that's always the first thing. Like if he turns and faces on an ISO and just shoots it, he's he's going to shoot well or fifty percent. You got to force him to put it on the floor. So times when he puts it on the floor out of an isolation, he's ten out of thirty six this year after being over fifty percent last year, and that's really interesting. I didn't get a chance to dig into the film specifically on those plays. He still gets fouled on these plays a lot, but you would think with in theory more facing this year that he could be even more effective there and then the other thing that just reduces efficiency a little bit although he's relative to league average he's actually about the same in efficiency this year as he was last year is he shot a career high from the line last year 86% now he's down to 81% so just like subtle declines in a lot of areas but it's really like his best game of the year I thought maybe was the one against the Celtics where he had 41 that's the time when you're just like all right this guy feels absolutely unstoppable right now like this is this is the guy who's going to be able to dominate in the playoffs when he's really hitting that mid-ranger. I think just given the nature of his game, we haven't seen him have a great series beyond the first round yet. I don't know if he's even ever had a great first round, frankly, in part due to injury.
2: What I but, know that they are like in yeah. the in that Raptors series, the second rounder in 2019, the numbers when Embiid was off the floor were horrendous for the Sixers, but I didn't think he was like a monster in that series. It was more. Yeah, that not offensively. No. Yeah, Mark
1: Gasol could, really shut him down.
2: Yeah. It was just that they couldn't do anything when he was off the floor. That's a different thing than he was great
1: offensively. So, next up here, the Milwaukee Bucks are in fourth place. We're going to actually save them and the Nets because I know we both watched that Nets Bucks game. We're going to save that for tomorrow's Dunk Prime episode and, and skip those teams for now. We We got the Heat and the Bulls left still. I think we're probably going to spend at least 20 minutes on that game, I would guess. So we don't quite have enough time here to do that uh, because today is clay day. Mm But and and because
2: we're to... already we're already pretty close to the two hour mark. But let's continue with the Miami Heat. They are twenty five and fifteen, strong nine and fours, the last fifteen and sixty. They are fifth in net rating at about a plus five, sixth in offense, sixth in defense. One of the few teams that well, one of the teams that's top ten in both. Optimistic, of course, in both the models. And to me, this has been a really impressive stretch for the Heat as an organization, for Erik Bolstra as a coach and everything else like that. Um we'll talk about their win over the suns like that i, I want to talk about that a little bit but let, let's kind of catch up on some other stuff first
1: yeah one of the biggest things that i think is interesting is max Strus has started the last two games even with duncan robinson available robinson was in the protocols but i mean the way max Strus has played he, number one he shot it better than robinson i don't know if you played a thousand seasons whether you would end up considering max Strus a better shooter than duncan robinson i'd still think duncan robinson a little bit pure of a shooter that, than max truce uh, although Strus certainly is very aggressive shooting the three as well. But Struce is better in basically every area other than shooting. And he's pretty darn close as a shooter, as well. You could, but, and he can still, the maybe the most important thing is that you can still run the same types of plays with Struce as you can for Robinson. And Struess is also able to attack the basket. He's rugged. He'll jump in and take some charges. And he's not going to just get completely overpowered the way that Duncan Robinson is. I, I wouldn't say that Struce is like some great defender, but I think he's also not someone who just has a target on his back as well and Robinson came in and and was great in that Phoenix game coming off the bench and maybe he's better off the bench he you can play he and Hero together more easily against bench units and so I don't know I think I think I, I would guess and particularly the way that Eric Spolster does things. And they have, you know, Duncan Robinson I don't is not a sacred crowd, I don't think, despite the fact he's on that $18 million a year contract and Struess is on a two-year minimum after being on a two-way last year. I mean, Duncan Robinson got his slot because he was brought in to start over guys who had more of a pedigree back in the 1920 season. So the Heat are not scared to do that. That raises the idea to me, Danny, that if the Heat do want to upgrade in some way, and I don't know that I actually really feel like I needed to make that much of a deal as them. But if they did want to make a move, Robinson seems like clearly the salary potter that they would need to use.
2: Yeah, I got asked about this in the Twitter the solo Twitter space that I did on Friday, and I was like, yeah, you know, that's it's it's a reasonable path because Jimmy and Bam and Kyle are your other high salaries and you probably want to keep those gentlemen around. Some of them you can't trade because of extensions and all that. And so yeah, I I I think it's a reasonable thing to consider, but the question is what are you getting for them? What does it add to your team? Does it make you Relative to title equity, or does having two bites at the Struce Robinson apple make more sense than, than some of those things? Which I think is a reasonable possibility. Struce has been very good so far this year, and
1: Robinson, like, yeah, Tuck- and, and I think that's reasonable because they, Bam and Jimmy, two of your three front court starters are not three point shooters, so having elite shooters around them, we've seen that, of course, with, with the Warriors guys that you can get away more with those non shooters, and particularly when Bam and Jimmy are both capable of making plays, right? And, uh, and shooting around them,
2: and PJ Tucker's having a wonderful shooting season, but he is a different kind of shooter overall. So that's a, it is a challenge there. Yeah, I think I think it's a worthy it's a worthy conversation to have. But and that's why Pat Riley, you know, you have these conversations and Robinson makes the right amount of money where you can work some things in. I don't think the heat, you know, I don't think they want to dip into the the tax. They are hard capped, but they could still dip into it a little bit. Depending on their non gear, their uh, unlikely bonuses and stuff. I don't have their full structure, of course. But. Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a, it's a it's something to consider. Another part of why this run for the Heat has been so impressive to me is because they've been short-handed with multiple absences at the same position, and so that with Bam out and then Deadman going down. Omer Yurtsevin has been the starter. The summer league standout has been very productive statistically. And the Heat are 5-2 since he took over the starter, plus 8, clean the glass net rating, which is 4th in the NBA during that time period. Yurtsevin, 12 points, 15 rebounds. Though, incidentally, he's doing it on 49% true shooting. So, you know, it's a little, little bit there that's... You would you you just know, getting getting putbacks and offensive rebounds versus you know driving efficient offense yourself. But for me, the cherry on top at the moment of the Sunday was. The last game on Saturday's slate was Heat Suns. Jimmy still out, and I'm just like, well, I'll watch a little bit of it just as long as it stays competitive. Well, that ended up being correct, but not because the Suns blew out the Heat, but because the Heat, through primarily a 38-21 second quarter, just crushed a pretty damn close to full strength Phoenix team.
1: Yeah, Aiton was back. I think some of those guys were just in their first game back.
2: They were. I think they those. To, I think it was Jay Crowder's down. first game back.
1: Yeah, and you know the Heat did shoot 22 of 44 from three but they also have really good shooters yeah. and duncan robinson we mentioned that eight out of 16 from three and then Struess in the starting lineup was four at eight robinson did actually play more minutes uh, than Struess, and then tyler hero had an awesome game he blew up uh, with 33 points on 12 of 20 actually got six free throw attempts which was good but it's not like the suns were terrible shooting the ball either they were 41 percent, but they forced the suns to shoot 36 percent for two how did they do that
2: did he do a really good job of they're very aggressive schematically of you know trying to prevent drives and trying to prevent damage in the paint so it isn't just Yurtsevin he did have some decent verticality plays but I thought they had they threw bodies at the Suns and were trying to trying to make shots harder in especially from floater range and mid-range and some of it is good shooters not making as many but I thought they were also well contested Devin Booker was one of eight in the paint and Chris Paul was two of eight on twos overall worth noting that Booker did take thirteen free throws. So some of that is just you can forget you kinda converted in a sense. And I talked about how it's kind of bodies not shot blocks and a, a like a good way of measuring that is that Miami you know so Phoenix only shot that 36 percent on twos Miami only blocked one shot and it was Tyler Hero I don't quite remember the play where it happened so I thought they did a nice job just making life hard congestion and then they did give up some threes and they did give up some threes to good shooters but the math problem I would say worked out pretty clearly in their favor even though the Suns got up some free throws they got up some threes if you're shooting 36 percent from two that's a problem and also, they ran something, Nakias Duncan did a nice job highlighting this, that I really liked, where they had Duncan Robinson screening for Tyler Hero. And the Suns just didn't, like, they're a very good defensive team. They didn't really know how to handle it. Both guys kind of trailed Hero for just long enough, or trailed Robinson for just long enough for Hero to drill the three, I'm just like, ooh, like that's, a, like, that's a nasty thing for a shooter to screen for a shooter, and both, like, neither guy's necessarily, the defender on them is super involved in screening action, so the defenders might not know how to handle it.
1: Yeah, Miami is going to be very, very dangerous, and I'm not going to say this now, but I think there's a possibility I mean obviously I want to see how they look when all these guys get back and stuff I want to see what moves the Nets make at the deadline I want to see whether Kyrie Irving will be playing in home games or not I want to see if the Bucs can fortify their depth I think there's a possibility that I will pick the Miami Heat to come out and if like if if the Heat got whole and neither the Nets nor the Bucks made any moves I would very seriously consider pick to come out of their defense but, is I, just going to be so filthy all right let's get to our last team again reminder that we're going to discuss bucks and nets uh, tomorrow the chicago bulls number one seed in the east right now mr Larue. they definitely are and the bulls
2: are that on the strength of a 26 and 10 record and a perfect 9 and 0 since the last 1560. have some specific stats on that that we'll get to in a second their seventh in net rating plus 4.4 is very strong fourth in offense 11th in defense and the models really like them. 51 wins per Raptor would be tied for first in the Eastern Conference, and both models give them a 97% chance of making it. The stats during the nine-game win streak, 9-0, of course, plus 7.7 net rating is great. And they're second in offense during that stretch, incredibly. So that stretch is actually almost a month because of some postponements. Do you want to—did uh, you already look at it, or do you know the team that's ahead of them in offensive rating during this stretch?
1: That's interesting. So this is since when?
2: Roughly, roughly since, time. like— Let's say roughly since December twelfth, something like that. The Grizz? The
1: Raptors. Ooh.
2: That might be that's... a future that might be a future fifteen and sixty topping. Apparently. Yeah. And uh, um the Bulls in that stretch, they're they're eighteenth in defense, but their first in effective field goal percentage, making forty four percent of their threes and forty six percent of their long twos. So yeah real good shooting and so also on that on that front if the bulls can beat dallas on sunday that game happens after we are recording this podcast they will have gone a month between losses because even though it will have that point only been 10 wins they've had some postponements so month between losses is pretty impressive if
1: they can make it yeah and i believe every single person on the team now and the head coach have gotten COVID, which is maybe some would argue a good thing going forward for potential immunity and they also kind of lucked out in the sense that They were the first team to get games canceled because the pandemic was uh, ripping through them, at least in terms of cases. Not like you know people actually getting sick in a way, the problem. But to have a couple of games canceled and not really have to play any games with just a total skeleton crew—they haven't had to play, I don't think, any games in this stretch without either DeRozan or Levine, if memory serves. And I think Vucevic has been has been around for most of them too. And so they they got lucky with the cancellations, and then they basically got to take almost a whole week off, and they came back and they beat the Lakers immediately there so not that it has been difficult to overcome but the part that would have been the hardest part to overcome they actually got the games canceled and that was before the NBA instituted these new protocols where you just you have to sign more guys etc and that's avoided a bunch of other games getting canceled so is there anything do you think that this obviously 9-0 and is not sustainable 44% from three is not sustainable 46% from long two as a team I mean DeRozan is very good obviously the rest of the guys don't have that type of. Vooch is okay but they don't necessarily have that type of track record so the shooting is going to regress a a little bit but they're kind of morphing a little bit more particularly in the absence of Alex Caruso into the balance of team that I thought they'd be obviously higher quality I would say on both ends but to be really good on offense and as you mentioned number 18 on defense they could end up I think more around league average by the end of the year but I think they have a decent chance of being a very good offense we'll see how the return of Caruso changes that but in his absence uh, Kobe White has come on. Obviously, he struggled with that shoulder issue early. He was kind of in and out of the rotation. When they're at full strength, you know, he still, I think, even after this nice recent stretch, going to be competing with Io DeSumo for fourth guard minutes. But certainly during the regular season, he can give them a little bit more. Got a lot of attention for a 12-assist game against Atlanta. And I thought he did show off better passing than we've seen from him at basically any other time. I watched all of his assists in this recent six-game stretch where, despite the 12 assists, game and he's playing 33 minutes per game still hasn't exceeded five assists in any other games other than the 12 assists game in the last six but th- that game looked pretty good he really looked good in that game and some of the other ones when it watches other assists as well uh getting pocket passes he and tyler cook at backup center it got a nice chemistry set up a few dunks there the white did a good job of tightly navigating around the screen but then keeping the guy guarding him more on his back which is an important skill not only to prevent him from getting back around but also to kind of prevent the guy guarding you from veering back onto the big and so once the guy gets on your back then you really have that true two-on-one situation you're also in between where he would need to get to pick up the big man and so that's why they're able to get those pocket passes for dunk he had one nice drive from left to right into the lane coming off that vooch handoff and then he twisted around to throw it way back out to the three-point line to Vooch for an open three that looked pretty good he had a couple of nice skip passes to the weak side and he's had a, a couple of drives where he found nice little dump offs to guys to, for dunk so looks like he's gotten his passing a little bit better I mean they're still not doing a ton of it. really they did more side pick and roll for him than just straight up top ball possession stuff like he still has played off the ball I think a, a reasonable amount uh, but he's closed some games and then the other thing of course that's gotten a lot of attention is the shooting and that's not really sustainable what he's done over the last six games there from the outside.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, he's what, roughly 50% from three, right? 50, more than that, 55?
1: Uh, yeah, he's 10 out of 18 on corner three, or I'm sorry, uh, 8 out of 10 on corner threes in the last six games, and then he's 14 to 30 above the break, and then even on his mid-ranger, he's six out of eight. Most Mostly that's three, so, but he's, yeah, 55% Oof. from three yeah. in this period, and so th- that's not gonna sustain, but certainly if he can get to be a high 30s three-point shooter reliably, he can create shots pretty well and add some passing. So, like... I mean, I think I had him number four on my draft board behind Zion, Ja, and Garland in 2019, and it's not insane that he could still live up to that. Point guards do take a while to come along. Their t- their timeline has changed. Maybe it's better for him to kind of be in this role. But I'm very interested to see whether he can continue to really be a solid part of things once Caruso gets back or not, which should be relatively imminent. It seems like this week, based on what that that original seven to ten day timeline. All right. Well, this was fun. We didn't get to Nets and Bucks, but we did want to spend some more time on both of those teams tomorrow, and also talk about the Klay Thompson return tomorrow as well. Thanks again so much for being a subscriber, and we'll talk to you all soon. Till then. At Bet365,
0: we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar.